Hi, I'm Dr. Sam Bars. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where we explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK, with a range of expert guests. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Education and Youth. The Centre for Education and Youth believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at cfey.org. Hi and welcome to this episode of the CFEY Youth and Education podcast. This time we're going to be talking to Bart Shaw, our Head of Policy. Hi Bart, good to have you on the show. Hi Phil, thanks for having me on. Can you tell us a bit about what you're going to be uh, discussing with us today? Yeah, sure. So I've picked uh, three pieces of research that um, I found interesting and also that uh, I thought were interesting from a kind of from a from a policy perspective and yeah, they're all quite sort of contrasting, contrasting bits of research. I've got something that Ofsted have produced, which is like quite a small scale, but really interesting, uh, qualitative kind of case study piece, looking at the experiences of children with special educational needs and disabilities, mm-hmm. and uh, the ways in which schools kind of make adjustments for them and, uh, and the support that they receive both from schools and the local authority. Mm-hmm. I've got like a more of a kind of big statsy piece, uh, which is looking at kind of post-pandemic gaps between disadvantaged pupils and non-disadvantaged pupils in primary school and looking at measuring the attainment gap and whether it's changed during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I've got a, a piece that we tweeted about actually a couple of weeks ago uh, from... John Jerim and Luke Sibietta, which is, I think, part of, if it, it, it seems like it's part of some ongoing work they're doing, looking at the ways in which education policy in the four UK nations has changed since, since education policy was devolved in 1999, and looking really? at kind of the different directions things have taken. Yep, sounds great. So let's get right into it then. So your first bit is the uh, is Ofsted's report, as you say, on supporting SEND. Can you just tell us a bit about, uh, well, what did it say? Yeah, cool. So, I mean, I think actually for, for some people, they'll probably know this already, but for others, they might not know that Ofsted don't just do inspections and that they have other roles as well and one of their roles is to almost like keep abreast of what's happening in schools and and local authorities um, in terms of looking after young people with special educational needs and disabilities and they periodically do quite sort of large-scale national reviews you know this is this is the big picture of of what um what send i'll probably call it send from now on actually uh, a um, abbreviating special educational <laughs> needs and disabilities and um, so yeah looking at send uh, send support across the country um, and this one is slightly different and I really like it because quite often these kind of these pieces that that are kind of aimed at aimed at policy makers and helping policy un- makers understand what the landscape looks like are often quite sort of large-scale big samples aiming to be as generalizable as possible and that's obviously really useful because because you can have a lot of trust that that the experience that the that the the findings are ones that are shared 
across a lot of places in the country but this one isn't like that and it kind of um yeah i guess the drawback of, of some of those bigger statsy pieces is that it looks at more of the average experience mm-hmm. whereas this one looks in real detail at the individual experience so it's not generalizable you can't look at this study and say this is what's happening across the country but you can uh, read it and get a really good really like in-depth understanding of actually what what it looks like and what it feels like to be to be a young person in a school and or to be a teacher in a school or the parent or carer of a young person and kind of what support they receive so so they've got done this case study of, of, of 21 pupils and those 21 pupils come from seven mainstream schools so they're specifically looking at what support is like in mainstream schools for children with SEND. Um, and they're in two local authorities. Mm-hmm. So of these 21 pupils, seven of them uh, have um, an EHC plan. So an education, health and care plan, which means that they're eligible for like a higher rate of funded support for them. Um, but that leaves the other ones who are actually the sort of the majority of children with SEND who are on um, SEND support, which is like the lower rate of funding Uh, where there isn't necessarily, as you say, there isn't sort of stated specialist report, specialist support written down that they are eligible for. It's more kind of up to the school, what the school should be putting in place to support these children. Mm -hmm. And actually, children with then make up about 15% of the total pupil population. And the majority, like the vast majority of those aren't on EHC plans. Mm. I quite like the fact that it's not totally sort of high level needs focused. Mm. Um, so who else, did, who did they talk to? Was it just students or? Yeah, so they, they talked to the students. They're quite, um, they're quite upfront about it. So they did like a, they used a, um, a community group of young people with SEND to kind of come up with uh, an interview plan for, uh, to speak to young people. Now, bearing in mind, some of these young people are really young. Um, so they talked to uh, a lot of pupils in primary schools and a lot of pupils in the kind of the first few years of primary school. So they're quite open about the fact that like, they, they gathered less data from the young people or not that they gathered less, but the, the data collection, you know, they elicited a, a smaller response from young people than they did in the focus groups and in sorry, the interviews with professionals mm. and with parents and carers. So they interviewed... Um, all the children's parents and carers. They also interviewed head teachers, senkos in each of the seven schools, and then classroom teachers and support staff who were who who kind of had relationships with those twenty-one pupils. And uh, just before we move on to the actual findings, do you uh, know anything about the kinds of um, kinds of SEND that the kids had? Um, really mixed. Um, so there were some who had like really complex needs and some who were kind of on the verge of being, of their needs being like their needs weren't sort of formally identified or yeah, really varied. Cool. So tell us a bit about the findings then. They kind of divide it up into three sections. They look at the support pupils receive in schools. They look at the ways in which schools work with parents and carers. And then they look at the way that schools and other agencies um, work together. And in terms of the, um, the messages in terms of 
what the support pupils receive in schools. I mean, there was a fair amount in there that was really positive, actually, and really worth celebrating in terms of schools really aiming for inclusivity, really putting a lot of emphasis on developing um, positive relationships with young people and putting in place adaptations to help pupils access the curriculum. And in the, in, they say that in the best examples that they came across, uh, the relationships were really purposeful. So the relationships were, were built with, with the aim, so with the school having the aim of understanding what those young people's strengths were and what they could achieve rather than a more kind of deficit orientated model where they might look at what they couldn't do. Um, and that led to having some really high expectations for young people. There was quite a lot of early identification and intervention. Um, everyone was aware of how important that was. Although they point out that sometimes it's really difficult, particularly um, for young people with like lots and lots of complex needs, actually picking out what the different needs are. And in some cases that young people actually over quite a period of time had developed really um, effective coping strategies mm. that masked some of their learning needs. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's the that's the positive side. But I guess the bit that's most interesting is to pick out where were their kind of areas that where where the the schools could do better, and I think they're yeah it's worth picking out a few things, um, partly because that the, well the, the the things that I've picked out sort of chime with other stuff that that either that we have called for through our reports or the other research has pointed out a kind of more widespread problems. So one of them is, uh, is around assessment, actually, that they found that one of the areas teachers found really difficult was understanding like the, the detail of pupils, like the progress that pupils can, that pupils make in their schoolwork. So uh, sometimes that was a kind of a, a question of, of not knowing kind of what had happened before. Um, so there's an example of a young person kind of midway through primary school and the teacher, it sounds, this sounds really blamey. It's not meant to be blamey. I can totally understand how this happens, but, but they were asking about, you know, what they're, what they're uh, talking about speech and communications needs and, and pointing out the teacher didn't know that, you know, in their, in early years, how they'd done in their phonics checks, mm. um, whether they passed their phonics checks or not. And so, you know, that in itself probably isn't massively important if the teacher is like, has a really detailed understanding of where that young person is in terms of their kind of uh, speech communication reading. Uh, but, you know, obviously is a problem if if it's leading the teacher to sort of not have a really detailed understanding of, of where that young person's at and where they need to go next to make progress. Do you think that's a sort of more generalised problem? Do you think that's just an issue around, well, it's more a, a communication issue inside inside that particular school rather than a concern about how in-depth yeah, totally. the teacher knows the child? What do you think? Yeah, totally. So in this case, in the research we're talking about, definitely it's just, you know, they are really explicitly saying these are just like examples of you know that it's not generalizable that it is just you know that's the commu a communication issue in that school or with that teacher or whatever what mm. have you so the other thing that was really important i think was um 
that this study found that uh, there was a an over-reliance on teaching assistants that the, the pupils they spoke to and the pupils and that the school and the schools themselves both so the pupils were reliant on their teaching assistants probably to a greater extent than would be ideal and that the schools deployed their teaching assistants in a way that wasn't um that didn't make the best use of resources so um so recognize that the teaching assistants were brilliant um that there were some areas in terms of you know people confidence and motivation where uh, they added huge amounts of value for those young people in the way that they were used. But actually, they were used in ways that took the people away from the attention of qualified teachers, that took pupils out of lessons, so they were missing chunks of lessons that were important, uh, or kind of um, hindered some of the kind of social aspects of schools. Mm. Um, and so the report's really clear that actually this is some, something that schools need to think about. And there's lots of research out there um, in our book, we talk about it and we, uh, we make a link to uh, a researcher called Rob Webster, who, who has this kind of maximizing the impact of teaching assistance, assistance project. I think he's actually just released a book as well. So it's thinking about how can you use teaching assistance in a way that really supports pupils who send and doesn't, um, doesn't essentially take them away from the most qualified professionals in the room. Yeah, it's interesting because that sounds to me like we've got an issue of okay yes they should be with qualified teachers but when is that going to happen i mean you know i think most of our listeners are probably familiar with uh, the sort of crisis of teacher workload and school funding yeah. and stuff um and certainly in my experience when i was a teacher management would expect pupils with SEND to undergo intervention yeah which couldn't be conducted by the class teacher because they were yeah, yeah. taking the class. So I think we've got a whole sort of melting pot of expectations around the teacher there, haven't we, that contribute to, well, why, why they end up going off with TAs. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's almost worth thinking about it the other way around. So, so that it happens, the, 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 the pupils who send a kind of place at the forefront of thinking about of thinking of, of a teacher planning how they're going to deliver the curriculum and so they're thinking that this is the right this is the priority it's like my pupils have sent they're the ones i need to think about first the intervention is actually me as a classroom teacher teaching these pupils and using the teaching assistant in the room to help with you know the extension task for pupils who don't need quite as much support from the teacher so maybe that's one way of thinking about it yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, it's it's certainly important to prioritise the needs of kids with SEND. But then again, I mean, I just find this sort of fascinating from us, from a more sort of, uh, how to phrase, uh, like the politics of what Ofsted demand of schools perspective, because what you're describing is great pedagogically, but it doesn't fit with the actual framework of performance related pay that teachers work within. So yes, you can prioritise your SEND pupils, but if your pay rise is contingent on your kids, on your entire class of kids getting a certain level of attainment or progress or grade or whatever, then it's quite hard to to prioritise those minority of students. I mean, I think it's very important. Like I'm, I'm certainly not arguing that it leads to SEND kids are not important. I mean, I have SEND myself, but I think what I'm observing here is that it's difficult given the sort of bureaucratic framework that teachers work within. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. So the question is, what you do about it? I guess. Yeah. Because I don't think performance-related pay is going away imminently. 
So I think this is where actually Ofsted are probably moving in the right direction in asking questions and trying to get school leaders prioritising children with SEND. You know, in a way, I, mean, I totally buy what you're saying that it doesn't fit with some of the accountability system. So it's like, how can it work in the rest of the accountability system? What are the other levers that Ofsted can use mm. to encourage schools to prioritise SEND in this way? And mm. um, so asking more questions about it in inspections, uh, having inspectors who are more skilled and experienced in SEND, mm. um, and then also doing this kind of work, which is just kind of like information sharing, putting out examples of, of practice that people can evaluate for themselves and think about for themselves, how it works in different contexts. I think actually there's a lot that the Department for Education can do as well and ministers can do in terms of talking about SEND more. I mean, in the last, uh, in the last year, um, it's really felt like a total afterthought in terms of all the guidance that's gone out to schools in how they deal with the pandemic and how they deal with teaching. Quite often, SEND hasn't featured in that guidance at all or has come out, at a, or there's been some guidance issued at a later stage know a, a literal afterthought mm. so i think okay i mean, I totally buy what you're saying about the accountability system i think it doesn't work for pupils with SEND either but there are still some things that there are still some levers that government can use to yeah help prioritize SEND in schools cool so let's have a look at your second paper which is not unrelated because i think we're thinking more broadly about not just kids with SEND but other disadvantaged pupils and I think this is looking at, am I right in saying it's looking at how, how the pandemic has affected their attainment? Yeah, it's looking at whether the attainment or how the attainment gap has grown over the pandemic. And yeah, it's a really different study because it's kind of using uh, big samples of data. So the, what, what they do is they have, they have some pupil attainment data. Oh, firstly, I should say who, uh, whose research we're talking about here. Yeah. This is like a collaboration between uh, Education Data Lab, the Education Endowment Foundation, EEF, and TeacherTap. Um, so they're bringing together some attainment data, but not from exams, but from the, some of the standardised assessments that schools use. Uh, these ones are called PIRA and PUMA and NTS tests. I don't know very much about them as assessments at all, but yeah, it's just to kind of set the context that they're using standardized assessments. So schools will kind of use these to, to, to track progress. Sure. And um, not every school does it. So they've got a sample of 132 primary schools who use these assessments. Um, and then they've also uh, used teacher tap. And yeah, so the questions they wanted to answer are how have attainment gaps changed since the onset of the pandemic? Um, how did schools and teachers respond to the challenges? And are there any associations between the responses that teachers and schools made in response to the pandemic and changes in attainment gaps? So were there things that, is it, could they find associations between the kind of things that schools did to teach remotely, for example, and and attainment gaps and I think it's really interesting because firstly I mean they're quite unexpected in some ways and um, so like the big one of the big findings is that the attainment gap, gap widened really quite dramatically 
um, in, in maths. So remembering this is just primary schools. And they looked at in which years, which year group the attainment gap had widened most. And it was, uh, it was in years two and three, which is interesting that A, I mean, it's like that gives schools a kind of uh, a bit of a, um, a tool, a bit of a, a flag, you know, in response to this, should schools be looking at least at those kind of year two and three and making their own assessments of where pupils in year two and three are at? thinking that they are used from this data, they are kind of like most likely to, um, to have fallen behind their peers. So yeah, years, year two and three is where the gap has widened most. Found that most of the, the damage, I guess, or most of, the, most of the widening happened in the first lockdown rather than in the autumn um, last year when it kind of, there were local lockdowns and schools, uh, you know, some schools were closing, some, some weren't, and it was a bit more, you know, it, it was a, a less clear national picture but interestingly there was no widening of the gap for reading mm. which surprised me i guess intuitively you can sort of understand that it's maybe easier for pupils to practice reading at home and more difficult for them to have the kind of support in uh, in learning maths at home but still I, I wouldn't have expected quite such sort of a stark contrast yeah it's quite dramatic isn't it yeah, totally. And actually the gap, you know, um, the, the extent to which the gap widened is also quite dramatic. Uh, so they, it, they reckon that it was somewhere between 10% and 24% of the pre-pandemic attainment gap um, in maths. That's um, quite a, uh, that's quite yeah, a wide that range. Is, yeah. But the, <laughs> the other interesting thing, and I think this is, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of people who will... Um, who uh, uh, will be surprised by this is that actually there was no, they couldn't find this. So this research couldn't find a clear association with schools responses to remote learning. So it's no kind of, there was no clear association that doing, you know, live teaching in that first lockdown. I mean, you remember the furore about, um, uh, about, you know, whether teachers should be using, uh, should be streaming live classes or not. Yeah. Um, and there was no association actually between schools that did that and schools that didn't in terms of whether the attainment gap widened or not. And that's not to say that there weren't other be benefits from doing having particular responses to the pandemic. But in terms of this, in terms of the gap between disadvantaged pupils and the rest, um, there didn't seem to be any association. But I mean, they do point out that there um, that this is like a first. <laughs> Oh, how do they describe it? Like a kind of, this is a first step into understanding the effects of the pandemic on the attainment gap. And so there's well, kind I mean, of more research needed to really unpick kind of what happened and as a result, then what should happen for the recovery. But I think it's quite a nice, clear steer for schools that, okay, so, you know, maths is likely to be, it might not be, but maths is likely to be more of an issue for disadvantaged pupils than reading is. Mm -hmm. um, and the year two and three are more likely than other year groups to need additional support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we should flag as well that this is only an interim report. So um, yeah. are we expecting the study at the end of the year, isn't it? Yeah, so they're going to look at, um, rather than using these standardised assessments, I think their plan is to look at kind of the, the big national assessments and then like run the analysis again. So I think... Well, yeah, definitely one to keep keep your eyes peeled for. Um, 
I think that's that's some potentially pretty controversial findings, but I guess we'll find out more when it's uh, when the final one's yeah. released. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, let's have a chat about your last one then. So this is more of a sort of history piece, I guess you'd call it. So it's <laughs> a, a sort of history of UK education policy since uh, the devolution of education in '99. Tell us a bit about uh, tell us a bit about what they said. Yeah. So I read this almost like purely from just like personal interest. Um, again, it's an interim, I guess not an interim report, but there's going to be research off the back of it that's kind of more evaluative and tries to uh, try, will try and say, you know, this, these particular policies appear more effective than others. Um, so this report is kind of almost purely descriptive and it's looking at, yeah, how, so recognising that um, education policy uh, in 1999 wasn't the same in Wales, Scotland, England and Northern Ireland, but has diverged even more since. And the uh, devolution has led to some really quite contrasting approaches in schools policy. And then also how how those policies actually play out in school. Uh, and there's, I mean, one of the challenges for this podcast was thinking about this. I mean, there's so much in this piece. There's so much um, interesting stuff about how education policy is different um, that, you know, what to, what to pick out. And so I've picked a couple of areas, governance being the first. Mm -hmm. So school governance was a lot more similar <laughs> in 1999 to what it is now. Uh, so uh, the local authority played a much stronger role in England than it does now, but in Scotland and Northern Ireland, the role of the local authority was was stronger already in 1999 and has remained really important and really um, key to, uh, to the running of schools and the setting of education policy. Mm. Um, whereas, as we know, in England, that's, you know, there's been a, a huge move to a kind of more market orientated approach um, where schools have uh, more autonomy from the local authority but you know are instead the governance comes from other sources whether it's a whether it's a, um, a multi-academy trust or what have you the other interesting thing was the kind of the the, the new agencies that have popped up in all four countries since 1999 to help play a role in setting education policy. So Education Scotland was set up and that has like a, a really important role, including developing curriculum and coming up with inspections. Wales have set up a kind of consortia of local authorities that focus on developing uh, a school curriculum and looking at professional development, bringing together resources or hubs of schools to do kind of you know, whole school approaches to inquiry into a particular, I don't know, a particular uh, bit of um, research into pedagogy or looking at ways in which teachers across schools can learn together and develop their practice together. England have kind of had two, two new bodies, like the first of which are, are multi-academy trusts, which have you know, totally changed the landscape in terms of school governance. And then the regional schools commissioners who have a role in, uh, in what happens when schools are deemed to be failing. And, you know, England's a massive out outlier there in that in England, it's the only of the, it's the only one of the four countries where if a school is deemed to be 
failing or unsuccessful, then that triggers a change in governance. Mm. Really, really interesting the extent of the differences there. Curriculum, again, England is the uh, is like a really big outlier in that the other three devolved nations have curricula that look at kind of bring together cross-cutting skills and learning and are explicitly developing, looking to develop young people's skills. Whereas in England, the focus is on knowledge has kind of a more traditional, you know, subject structure uh, and sets out specific kind of content that pupils need to know at the end of each stage. So they made the point in this research that actually, you know, English, the, the English curriculum is more prescriptive. It says you must do this at this point. But then there's this weird disconnect that they found, which is in in schools, uh, teachers in England feel that the government plays less role in less of a role in telling teachers what to teach. Mm. Then when they make the sort of when they ask the same question in in Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland, where they feel uh, that the local authority or the national government plays a much stronger role in what they have to teach. Although on, on paper, it looks like it would be totally the other way around. Mm, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I wonder if that is to do with the sort of media narrative that has accompanied the marketization of schools around like increased autonomy. I wonder if um, perhaps teachers of England feel a bit more abandoned by the government. I mean, certainly that's the case in thinking about the college that I live near, which is on the verge of closure due to sort of a lack of funding and uh, absolutely no intervention from from local or national government to save it. People do feel quite abandoned by the government. So I wonder if it's perhaps less a uh, lesser reflection of how they relate to the curriculum or their relationship with government in general. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, this research doesn't doesn't say it's kind of it's asking uh it's looking at there's a like a a PISA survey Mm. where they ask teachers about their perceptions of the role of government in in setting the curricula so so the the question was definitely linked in curricula but I totally buy that you know people answer questions teachers you know we all answer questions in ways that aren't you know where where it's going to be our responses are are based not just necessarily on that particular subject, but mm. on our experiences more generally of how government plays a role in schools. I think yeah. maybe, I mean, I, I was reading it as there being something about maybe how maybe a written curriculum isn't seen as being prescriptive, whereas maybe more kind of more hands-on intervention training is but also it's like well is that a positive or a negative i mean as you say prescription could also or you know it might be that that prescriptive is the wrong word and actually you know it's supportive it's you know that there are things that local and national government do that helps teachers plan and deliver their curricula yeah so it's interesting I, i don't think this research really gives an answer yeah, uh, yeah. Look out for the next <laughs> for the next instalment of their research, which I think will yeah. be more evaluative. Well, as you said, it's mainly a descriptive piece, isn't it? It's all, it's almost like a history of uh, of recent education policy. But I mean, you've highlighted some quite, you know, the sort of big seismic shifts of the last uh, twenty years of education policy. We talked about marketization, talks about devolution and stuff. I mean, what's your and, and like the whole sort of knowledge skills argument, which. I know people feel strongly about where, yeah. where do you fall on some of these issues like what what's, what's your take 
as an individual. So on which on which particular issue are you are you talking? Um, well, let's go for knowledge skills first. Knowledge and skill. I mean, I'm going to give a really bland answer that will probably switch everyone off. That <laughs> they're both important. <laughs> I tend to think of things as you know. Obviously, we are the bulk of the research and the bulk of the kind of the work we do is with schools in England. So I tend to, I tend to think of it from a pretty English perspective, I guess. Mm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really, I couldn't tell you what what is in the curriculum for excellence in Scotland. So I don't feel I've got a very informed, it should be this way or it should be that way. But I think of it in terms of, well, it is this way in England. Like this is what the situation is. And there's a danger in the way the, the curriculum and the messages from government, there's a danger that the skills element is lost. So I think there's, I can understand the importance of, of knowledge and the centrality of that in education. I mean, it's definitely an important part, um, but I think, you know, it's worth people like us who are sort of one step removed thinking, well, don't forget all those other important bits that schools can do that yes, that's important, but you know, we also need to be, schools also need to be thinking about the kind of their, the development of, of, of young people's skills, their kind of well-being, their social development as well. Um, and to be fair, I think most schools do have, I, I, I think the sort of what you might see on Twitter doesn't really reflect the reality for most schools, which is there's a bit of both. What about um, what about marketization of schools and the advent of academization? I mean, you were a you remind me again when you were a teacher. You must have been in the sort yeah. Of, I was sort a teacher between about twenty ten and twenty fifteen. So you would yeah. Have, so you it would really changed quite acutely. I think. And, and before then, I've been in department for education. So I'd sort of seen so from twenty from two thousand and six or seven to two thousand and ten. Mm. So I'd sort of seen the gradual change and then the the real like step like in the 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 step change in pace after 2010 mm. again like I've, I, I mean I so my, my you know what Phil I, I find it really hard to put too much weight and when I think about like how how effective a school is mm. I kind of I don't think of its governance structure as like that that's not the first thing that springs to mind you know recognizing of course that the governance structure can can make a difference and can play an important role I kind of think, well, what, what, it's almost like the, the individuals who are involved in the governance of a school are kind of like more important than like where those, which particular groups of people those individuals are selected from. So that's kind of, so I'm probably, I'm a bit ambivalent about it. And um, I also, as I said before, you know, I, I think, I think one of the, one of the critis big criticisms I'd level at the academization program it's just been the amount of upheaval in such a mm. short space of time that probably schools haven't needed. When you combine that with a real terms cut in funding, uh, when you combine that with the workload issue, when you combine that with the amount of stress heads are under from the accountability system, I mean, I just think it's like all been a bit too much in a short space of time, regardless of whether it was the right thing to do or not. I, I, I don't know whether academization is the right thing or not but it is you know it's here and there are uh, the majority of secondary schools are academies and a, uh, a good chunk of primary schools are as well so I kind of like I'm not a not a massive 
you know, it should be reversed immediately kind of guy just because of the upheaval it would cause. Cool. Well, thanks for that, Bob. There's a really interesting overview of the uh, sort of recent history of education policy since devolution. Thank you for sharing your opinions. It was really fascinating to talk to you. Lovely having you on the podcast. Cheers. Thanks, Phil. We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.